welcome to Evolution Sucks, out of the primordial ooze and into our best life. I'm very excited to have a brother in arms joining me this week on episode 7 of Evolution Sucks. His name is Robert Trout. And Robert is the founder of the Experiential Healing Institute and Parent Trainers. With a master's in counseling and extensive work in experiential education, rites of passage, neurological practices, and behavioral health, Robert has built two companies centered on the education and training of parents and families to guide and work with young and with youth and young adults who struggle with mental or behavioral health issues. Robert uses his depth of knowledge in these areas to guide experiences and trainings that challenge individuals to see beyond their own limitations of belief and to foster new ideas in their lives and within their families and communities. He utilizes his study of ancient and modern ceremony, metaphor, experiential practices, life and survival skills to influence and work with people's belief systems to create a supportive environment so the family can choose to grow and change. Robert's unique perspective was formed through a lifetime where he has spent over 1,000 days in the wilderness seeking direction for his own life as well as guiding others through their self-discovery. He has found that when people struggle, the opportunity for lasting change becomes more present than when the life is stagnant. Welcome, Rob. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining me. Um, man, there's so much to dive into um, just out of your bio. But how about we start off with just telling me a little about yourself, kind of, you know, where you grew up, some of the highlights of family life, and and then if you could sort of lead into what got you into this this kind of work. <laughs> Such important work, I might add. Well, they're tied together. Um, I grew up in southwestern Virginia, and I had the what is now a very typical upbringing for a lot of families where I come from a divorced family set. Um, my mom and dad divorced, I believe, when I was seven, and 50 uh, 50 custody, and just kind of growing up in two very different worlds to be honest so my upbringing really started as far as like development when what I now know neurologically I was in the age of trying to figure out meaning during that phase I had um, two houses that I went to one week on one week off and both houses had very different rules (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Very different belief systems. (laughs) Very different models of parenting Mm. and structure. And I guess I start with that because ultimately as I went through life, I'm going to tell you that this isn't a victim story. This is a, I really just embraced the, okay, when I'm at mom's house, this is how life is. 
So I learned to live within that paradigm. And then it was, okay, when I'm at dad's house, this is how life is. So it was really the beginning for me of recognizing that people are different. (laughs) I just want to interrupt this, though, for one sec. Was there like a a period of adjustment each time you went back and forth? Or did you just switch modes like hitting a switch? For me and my personality type, I remember it as kind of hitting a switch. Mm -hmm. It was my mom picking me up from school one day and saying, we're not going back home. And me being like, okay, where are we going? (laughs) (laughs) I literally remember that. And it's like, all right. And then it started, okay, you're going to see your dad here. And we're going to do this. And, you know, we live here now. And, like, it just, I remember it playing out throughout my um, middle childhood very much in the, okay, how are things going to be different today? Mm. How old were you at this point? I started at seven. Uh Uh-huh. Um, and went on for about two years during the like, okay, let's get some form of balance here, um, on both sides. And I really am blessed that my father is very much a realist in the sense that he was like, this is just what it is. Mm -hmm. Like, we don't need to beat it to death. This is just what it is. And I'm not going to step into their divorce story, but like for me just growing up, like I very much still am on that space of life is life. And for me personally and a little professionally, I show up that way where it's like, can we just skip over the BS? Like let's not get into the, um, dynamics or, or things that aren't going to help this get better. Mm-hmm. Let's look at the dark places and the hard places and work on that. And that's a personal philosophy that's worked, I think, pretty well throughout my whole life. But also professionally, ironically, I kind of get paid to be that for people. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's one of our biggest selling points in my work where it's like, okay, you're hiring us so that we won't lie to you. Mm-hmm. Everyone else might sugarcoat it or sure. take you, oh, let's be gentle around this thing that's being yep. said or done or et cetera. But the work in the companies that I developed is highly focused on, no, here's what's happening, here's why, and here's your part. And if you want to fire me for hearing that, go ahead. But you'll be right back to me in a year after every other therapist or coach or whatever you try doesn't tell you to look at the thing that's causing the pain or the issue or the pattern or the thing. There's something so refreshing in that. Oh, it's When I hear this, it's like so simplistic in in a really basic way. Yes. I love it. Well... I so that's my foundation but as far as my growth story like life no matter what people can't escape we could call it trauma more so when I look at it I I say chaos Uh like we're going to run into events that were unplanned yes um so when I talk about my development story uh there's the divorce and then when i was 12 my stepfather was a police officer Mm -hmm. um and he was shot and killed in the line of duty and i was the oldest kid of four um on that side and i really stepped into that role of being there with my mom where it's like okay my mom's grieving and she needs help so i 
you know, followed the rules. I mm. cleaned. I was helpful. I was there as a confidant. I really grew up. And very often I've told the story that I didn't have a typical lashing out teenage experience um, where I kind of explored because my role became, I need to be this. So that's kind of the second piece of my personal development story where it's like, okay, I'm going to be the mature fatherly like uh, archetype that needs to step in and be um, not a burden to my mother and there and responsible and et cetera. And I became that for a lot of my friends in high school. Mm. Like I, that was my role, you know, they'd lash out and then they'd talk to me in process. So it's no wonder I became a therapist <laughs> yeah, <really. laughs> because I spent pretty much my entire teenage years training to be a therapist. Right. You just weren't um, getting paid for it yet. <laughs> yeah. But you know, the, the flip side of that is you can be as, mature and focused and and on it in life as you want to be but there's still going to be that emotional side on the background especially as a teenager so I got depressed because I couldn't be a normal teenager and I I had things that I couldn't process and I it didn't match like my external world didn't match my internal world Mm -hmm. in that depression uh and process I was fortunate enough to um get the chance to go to uh, a mock, uh, this is a long time ago, so a, a short-term wilderness therapy program um, because of my stepfather's death. Um, it was a groups that came together where all the kids there were kids of slain police officers. Oh, no kidding. Huh. So I got to do this. How old were you when that happened? The first time I went to that, I was... 15, I think that one, I had done some other things before that, but this was like outward bound led, like really Mm -hmm. leadership focused and like group team dynamics. And, um, the therapists were there with us the whole time, that kind of stuff. And I guess I tell this part of the story because it saved my life. Uh Like what I learned in that program saved my life. Um, and it was the beginning of me understanding how brains work and that my depression wasn't me. It was something I was experiencing. So mm. I started to develop skills where I could experience depression, but it didn't have to take over my life, things uh-huh. like that. So it really saved me in a lot of ways. Um, so, But that literally being that kid led me to the work I do today. Yeah. So let me pause you there because I find this really fascinating. So at age 12, this horrendous event that just, I can't even fathom what that must have felt like to hear that news. Then you step up into this role of being the man of the house and holding space and energy for everyone in your family as well as your friends. And then going to this program three years later. So here you've had this established time period of three years holding it together. Now you're meeting other kids who've experienced what you have talk a little about like what what happened there like were you able to just go oh finally I can I can let go or I can not be holding on so everyone else is taken care of were you allowed did you allow someone to take care of you I guess what that look like or feel like when you first went to that one well, there's a couple of different sides to it. From my personal experience, yes, being there with kids that went through the same thing was amazing because it's that feeling. And as a teenager, 
to feel I'm not alone, to feel that yeah. I'm not alone right is huge. Yeah. I, so I honor that completely. For me personally, the backpacking, climbing a 14,000 foot peak in Colorado uh, at night <laughs> with a group, um, doing ropes courses, etc., and to be honest, for me personally, a part of this story was that I wasn't, I'm probably still not the best student there is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was trying to hold life together during those years, but, you know, I'm not great at math. I'm not a great speller. I have different learning challenges and things, especially back then. And so you add all of it together with the stress and the grief and the processes, et cetera. It's like, this is a ticking time bomb. Yeah. Um, So for me, what really happened was that I climbed that mountain. I learned to read the compass. I accomplished the ropes course. I did all the things that when I really sat in reflection and outward bounds, amazing at that, the reflection of it where I was able to say, God, I'm really good at this. That was Mm -hmm. part of the life-changing like oh wow there's stuff i'm good at and this you know and being there and it's like i'm really good at all of this and i had already for years been like my friend's therapist so at this camp like i'm stepping in that role where the other kids are talking to me so like okay i i have a role i'm respected i'm good at this i i all this makes sense it just opened up a whole new world for me that i didn't know existed at the time Uh uh-huh i'm guessing though growing up in virginia that you were uh spending a lot of time outdoors yes were you hunting and doing those typical yeah we grew up on a farm on my dad's side um and then part of my mom's life we had land as well so we hunted and spent the majority of our life outside what i tell people about that is to understand that there is a difference a very distinct difference between a country boy (laughs) and a mountaineer yeah yeah So I, you know, I can hunt, I can country boy up, work on the farm, put the fence in. I can do all that kind of stuff. Back then, what I didn't know is that I could put a backpack on and climb a 14,000 foot mountain and make it mean something. (laughs) Because the country boy side of me goes, why? Why would you climb the mountain? We don't need a fence up there. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Why would you go expend all that energy when you could be taking care of chores? And to be honest, a part of this conversation we're going to have, if we talk about rite of passage, rite of passage has to be different. You can't do the same thing you always do and call it a rite of passage. Yeah, that's right. So for me, this course as a teenager, um, it was a rite of passage because it shocked me out of what I knew and put me into something I didn't know. And that's extremely important. Yeah, but what you found is that you were good at it. Oh, yeah. And that's interesting. (laughs) Right on. So talk a little, like, what evolved out of that experience? Did you go back and do more of those things? And and how did you come to create this business that you are running now? So I'm going to make a very long story shorter by saying that the wilderness camp I went to saved my life the first year I went. The next year... I knew what I was getting into, and I went back because I, the words I told my mother were, um, you know, I feel saved 
but I feel a little lost. I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. Uh-huh. So the second year I went and just kind of honed those skills and stepped more into the mentorship role and that kind of stuff. And then the third year I went back as an adult. I had turned 18. I was headed off to college and I was invited back to be a mentor. It was uh-huh. the first year. It's like, okay, let's bring some kids that know what they're doing in. And right. So the third year I went and I got to see the magic. Mm. I got to see the staff talking and how they were setting the stage for certain things to happen uh-huh. along the way. So I got to learn that it's not random sometimes. If you have guides and they know what they're doing on the rite of passage level, you're being pushed um, in a direction to help you find what they, what to me now is so obvious. It's like this person needs to have this conversation or join up with that or accomplish that or feel good about themselves like this, whatever that might be. So, in some way you could call it manipulation, but in the guiding world, that's, that's what guiding is, is like, okay, you know, I'm going to step in and take this person from here to here. And with a semblance of safety, even if they don't feel safe, right? They, there's a safety net that maybe they can't even see. So anyway, I, I did all of that. And the third year I was there, I had completed my first um, semester of college and I hated it. <laughs> I was going to drop out. I mm. was going to have this conversation with my father. And that was the biggest fear I had was dad. I'm not a student. I hate this. I, you know, et cetera. Well, the truth is, is I went to college in part because it's like, I guess that's just what you're supposed to do sure. after you're done with high school. Right. So completing that first semester before going back to this wilderness, uh, I had been a geology major. Turns out I love climbing rocks. I don't really care what they're made <laughs> out of. I really don't. <laughs> And I just, I, I didn't know that distinction. So my third year there, when I got to be in those staff ups and help plan and put things in motion, all that kind of stuff, I'll never forget it. I was on the bus on the way back to the airport after having an amazing experience. And um, a couple things happened on that bus ride. But one of them was this reflective thought where I was like, oh my God, all those guides that I've been working with over the last two weeks, they have college degrees. Mm. And I was like, Maybe I'm just not a geology major. Turns out the college I was in had one of the best best renowned outdoor rec departments in the country. No way. And I met the director as soon as I got back and he looked at me and I told him it's part of my story. And he's like, oh, yeah, you belong here. And he sent me right in. (laughs) So I transferred majors and loved it. Like college became something amazing for me. I learned to kind of navigate the system. Mm -hmm. I got, I was a full scholarship or uh, like financial aid student, um, scholarship student uh, where they, the government paid me to through hike the Appalachian trail for six months for full college credit. (laughs) They bought all the equipment. They bought all the food. They bought everything. So I could do this. I went to Paris and biked through Provence. I did all this stuff that really set me in motion as far as like, there's a way to understand how the systems we've built as humans to benefit each one of us, mm-hmm. but you have to learn how to do it. Uh-huh. So all of that going through college led me right back to, after working experiential education for a couple of years after college, right back into wilderness therapy, where I worked in wilderness therapy for nine different programs over 17 years mm. and um, became worked my way up from 
a intern guide to a master guide, um, then to director, then to a wilderness therapist. So that's what got me all the way through my degrees and um, my master's degree in counseling and doing just rite of passage and, and work with youth and young adults for the majority of all of my career. Then I'm going to answer your question where then we got to the companies that I've started now. The first being the Experiential Healing Institute. That's my you know, original idea. It, it actually got born working in wilderness therapy as a joke where we as guys would sit around the fire at night and we would just be shaking our heads because we were doing this intense therapeutic work with these kids very often through letter with their parents. And I can't tell you how many times we'd sit around a fire after all the kids had gone to bed and the guide team would be like, oh my God, you know, parents should like be required to get licensed before they're allowed to be parents. Yeah, no kidding. Like <laughs> that, that conversation, right? right? And then it was, then that would morph for us into, God, if that dad just knew how to do what we do, because we, we were trained, we were taught how to step in, intervene, build rapport, de-escalate, do all these interventions and work and understanding the neurobiology of what's going on for this kid, et cetera. And that was the conversation. So after working my way up through all that work, I was a wilderness therapist for a program. And I'll never, ever forget this moment. I tell this story all the time because this business really started out of complete frustration. Because so often kids would go home after working with me and uh, or go on to a boarding school for a semester or a year or something and then go home. And what would happen is they do tremendous work. The whole family would do tremendous work usually when they were with us for about 12 weeks in wilderness therapy. And <laughs> then they go and six months later, I get a phone call from the parents and they'd be like, hey, he went to this program right after that, and, and we did more work, and now he's home. Help! No one taught us how to do this. It's mm. like we did great therapy, but no one, like, how do we live with this kid that's bipolar? How do we live with this kid that has autism? How do we live with, how do we work with right. this thing? And that's what programs were ignoring. So this dad was walking into my group. I had been working with them for like three months and we were going to do a surprise graduation for his daughter. I stopped this dad a hundred yards from the group and was like, okay, when we walk in neurologically, I know, you know, we all know that she's going to see you and it's not going to be loving surprise on her face. She's going to get angry. We all know it because it's a trigger. It's, it's her brain. It's not her. And when she gets angry, I need to know that you're going to be able to speak to her, calm her down, help her deescalate and be present for right. this and not react. Yep. And this dad lifted his hands in the air, took two steps back away from me and said, I read the books, but I don't know how to do it. That was the moment I got started because oh, I was wow. so frustrated with the phone calls for years from families being like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And then this dad that when I left, I called a professional that I work with the industry and I was venting to her and I was like, you know what I need? I need someone out there that will fly in, train these parents to be my staff and then I'll guide them. But they're trained like my staff to help this kid build interventions, establish boundaries and structure, like put in a plan where in six months things will be stable. But they need to understand that for six months, it's not. They're going to have to work for this. Yeah. And 
by the end of that week, that professional had me a client, and I was like, I, I, I was, was kind of kidding. And <laughs> Just joking, and, everyone. <laughs> well, literally, it happened overnight where they, I talked to them, I came up with a price. I was like, if you could pay me this, I can quit my job, I can do this, et cetera, and like help you, and I'm just going to cross my fingers and hope that there'll be another family after you. And um, long story short, they mailed me a check. I didn't have a company. This didn't exist. <laughs> So I literally um, got the check in the mail, drove to the bank, opened a business account, registered the business, drove to Best Buy and bought a laptop computer because I didn't have one of those either. Oh my God. And that's how this company got started. And within six months, I was hiring a team because I was so busy that I needed help. I needed more trainers and people. So I pulled some of the best I knew mm. out of the industry that I had uh -huh. worked with at yep. different companies. And it was like, this is what I'm doing now. And they went, oh, heck yeah. And they stepped in. What a brilliant concept. <laughs> it's been I mean, amazing. It, and again, it's just when you think like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Why wouldn't you wrap the parents into this process? Why wouldn't you educate them while you're educating their child? Yeah. Or helping their child through a behavioral issue. I mean, that's brilliant. Well, for me, we have to define that word, Jamie. That's the word that gets people in trouble, educate. Because when we talk about, you know, you say the primordial ooze, right? Like the crap that we yes. all run into. Like I said, the chaos that we can't avoid Sometimes that doesn't show up as a divorce or a death or a car accident or the things that most people are like, oh, that's so traumatic. Sometimes it shows up as a chemical imbalance in the brain. Uh -huh. Sometimes it's, oh, my kid has autism. I didn't plan for that. Sometimes it's, it, it's the things that just take us off guard that we don't understand and we didn't learn anything about because we never expected to have to deal with this. So educate is the word that I have to help a lot of family. My whole team has to help families because they're like, oh, well, I read that book. And it's like, great. Now what I'd like you to do is forget everything you read. Mm -hmm. Everything. Because mm -hmm. we need to take what you think you know and show you that that's the problem. You think you're doing what you read conceptually, but reading the book, listening to the podcast doesn't change anything. Practice does putting it into actionable steps of stand there like this, literally down to that point where we tell our families, you need to have that conversation, but you need to do it in this room of your house, standing in this corner or sitting on that couch, wearing this colored shirt and these shoes pointed in that direction. Here are the words you are allowed to say. Here are the words you are not allowed to say, etc. This is what you're going to go do. And when you teach families how to do that, and again, my metaphor is we teach you to be staff. If you're going to go work yeah. for a program that your kid would be sent to, and I'm not talking like a government prison uh, adjudication thing. Right. Unfortunately, a lot of those programs don't focus on education. They're containment. Mm -hmm. um, so the staff at therapeutic programs that they're actually building intervention, training the kids, helping them through processes, et cetera. Those staff, if they're at a reputable program, I'll put that out there as well, they've been trained. They know what they're doing and they're not guessing. So for the parents, it's the same thing. Stop guessing. Right. Take what you have learned, but translate it in our way. Our coaching model is very supervisory where it's, okay, we're not going to say read that book and let's talk about it. No. Right. Your kid's doing this. 
I need you to stand here and do this, 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 and this. And then tomorrow you're going to say this. And then a week you're going to do this thing. And it's a process leading to a change in outcome. Mm. It's not immediate. It will never, ever be immediate. Now, you might get someone to stop yelling or punching a wall or something immediately. But the behavior is still going to be there until you change the container. The container has to shift. And in our world, what I always knew and what I'm, I'm building momentum for in the companies that have started is the understanding that the container is not in control or being controlled by the kid. If the container is being controlled or developed by the kid, there's your problem. Mm. Wow. So uh, this is just so fascinating um, for many reasons. And, uh, you know, obviously having a teenager in our home, uh, it's very close to uh, to my heart. <laughs> um, but so I guess I, I want to dive into some of these questions because I, there's so much that you just shared. And I'm thinking like, okay, as a parent, if you showed up and, and you were literally training me, like how, how resistant or, or open to this training am I as a parent? I guess the pain point of how bad my child is acting out might be it. But how effective is parental involvement given that some of the behaviors from their children are the most dramatic in the home setting. So in other words, a kid may act out here at home because they know they're getting, air quotes, unconditional love. They can be a dick and you're still going to say, I love you, hopefully, not all the time. So what happens when they go out in the world and they're, and they're acting out? So what, how do you address that difference, I guess is what I'm saying. And kind of piggyback to that is this idea of can you really like maybe the parents the problem <laughs> oh now and, and we're wait, getting controversial no, aren't we are. we? And, and I, I, I launched that out there because i'm looking in the mirror right now not really but metaphorically looking in the mirror and going god i can see how many of my behaviors have been adopted mm -hmm. by my teenage son. Yes. So talk a little about that. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there. So let sure. me start with maybe the disclaimer. Um, here's the disclaimer. No matter what I say, someone's not going to like it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I own that. Right. Our style of work works for the families that they are the families that they've been guessing for long enough that nothing's working and they get to that place of chaos and trauma where they, they just have to admit this isn't working. And very often they will say this isn't working for the kid. And that's the point where their brain starts to label the problem. Mm -hmm. You're the problem, mm -hmm. right? And they put that on a member of the household. Sure. Okay. The irony is, is very often as they do that, the teenager or young adults turning that right back around. You're the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So it starts um, 
Am I allowed to cuss on this podcast? Fuck yeah. <laughs> okay. So I, so I use language to try to just drive this point home where we talk about their shit and your shit. They're going to have their shit, however old they are in that. The teenager. Yes. Yep. Here's the deal. Their shit automatically developed from your shit. Right on. Which means you have shit too. Which means that if their shit is up and you get triggered and your shit comes up, now you're in a shit storm. Yes. That's it. Like all these problems that families kind of step into when it comes to the conflict area of it, as they start describing it, like me and my team were very often sitting there just holding our foreheads being like, all right, so that's your shit. And uh, yep, that's their shit. And oh, yeah, you started throwing the shit. Throwing shit makes you feel good for a second, doesn't it? Oh, you think he's going to get it this time, don't you? Nope, didn't get it. I guess you have to have the shit storm again tomorrow. All right, let's keep doing this. And it's this repetitive yeah. loop that happens in family systems. So when let me interrupt you here. So when you get hired by a family, do you hand out foul weather gear? <laughs> <laughs> Metaphorically. <laughs> like, guess what? It will be a shitstorm. Yeah. So and, and let's let's uh, establish that before there's some pie in the sky idea that you're marching in here. Yeah. And it's going to be all hunky dory. Yeah. No. And that's a part of it. Is there used to be people, and there probably still are some that it's like, oh, I'll move in with you. I'll be there to help with your kid. That kind of stuff. Most of them are gone. And the reason is, is because the same reason a lot of program systems fail for families is they're like, oh, we contained the kid. There's a difference between containment and treatment. Yeah. There is. And the functional difference of that is containment is, oh, I sent my kid to boarding school for a year, therapeutic or not, right. and they're going to come back and hopefully they're going to be more, more mature and listen to me. No, they're not. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, they're the same kid. The you, same kid. You but just pass the, the problem down that, the line. That, that's right. You're yeah. just prolonging the problem sure. in that. and. And so it, when you look at treatment, however, it true identified treatment for a lot of us professionals is when we can look at and say, okay, yeah, your kid might go to a wilderness program, might go to a residential treatment, might uh, go live with grandma, grandpa, might go do a gap year, might like, it doesn't matter. Like there's all these different interventions and things that people can uh, either afford or not afford or what they can develop within their families and things like that. The point is, is that once you build an intervention, it's either a containment intervention, meaning go away, <laughs> and we're going to pretend like this isn't a problem anymore. I think juvie hall when I hear that. Uh, it can be. Right. Some, or, and, or some kind of prison and, environment. And that's where they would get to. Th right. Those programs, like state, those are all containment. Yep. A lot of them, like I know you had Tom Bender on here and he used to work in prisons. Like, yeah, they have a therapeutic angle, but he even said like 15 minutes. Yeah, and, and, and he gets to leave and they don't. That's right, exactly. So it's literally containment. So uh, anyway, th there's this understanding that needs to happen uh, around differentiating what the goal is. And we help a lot of our families figure out what even that is. Because a lot of our families are considering some form of intervention, mm -hmm. removing the kid from the home or the young adult being forced out into a scenario to create change. Now, very often that is necessary. Intervention is an amazing therapeutic life development tool that does need to be used. It does need to be used. Now, within our dynamic, however, you know, we 
are looking at the effectiveness of it, you, that was part of your question in this, we have to back way up from that. Because a lot of parents, by the time they get to us, they're they're saying like, I'm going to kick him out, (laughs) you know, and it's like, okay, hold on. Is that the goal? And then we have to back up even further from the goal to let's talk about your triggers. And most of the time, our families are ready to say what we are doing isn't working. Sometimes we even have to help them get there, though, because they're still stuck in the story of, well, he's the problem. Sure. It's like, no, he's the result. Yes. So when we do our work, we focus on container, not the kid. A lot of the time, I'm going to say a good 60% of our work, we never meet the kid. No kidding. Ever. Really? We fly all over the world, go into the home, train the grandparents, aunts, uncles, parents, never meet the kid. Because guess what? The kid's irrelevant. Wow. You want no the kid way. you want the kid to be different? Change mom and dad. Because my <laughs> metaphor is you've been playing the game of life. At home, the rules, the structure, you roll this, you move this many, you go back two spaces, you etc. Here are the rules and here are the bound. This is how we play the game. Then the kid goes to school one day, comes home at the end of that day, and walks in. The game of life is gone. Now we're playing Uno. Guess what? You try to follow the rules of the game of life while you play the game of Uno you're going to be vastly disappointed and you're never going to win. And guess what? I don't care what brain you have. It doesn't matter what brain you have, what neurological thing, what diagnosis someone has given you, all that kind of stuff. And that's a whole other podcast. But the whole point of this is it doesn't matter. Every brain wants to win because winning is a part of survivability. Mm-hmm. And every brain wants to survive. In fact, your brain will kill you to try to survive. Mm. So... As we get into this process where we're working with our parents and you say, how effective is it? Well, you tell me if the parent is ready to say what we're doing isn't working for this kid, those parents are usually showing up being like, all right, we need to change this. Now, they're either starting from a place of let's work on them you know, or, yeah, we get it. What we are doing isn't working. That's where we ultimately have to get them. And sometimes we can do a lot with he's the problem. Okay, great. Then I need you to change this rule, this rule, this rule. Do it like this. Say this. You're going to back out. Very often in our most successful cases, what happens is we start to see a distinction where the parents don't feel like the kid's fighting against them anymore. Um, Very often we use the metaphor of the house, the house rules, the Mm. house and it's like, oh, I'm sorry, you lost your phone because that's just the way it happens here. Sorry, nothing I can do about it. This is the dad. I see. There's nothing I can do about it. It's just what happens here. If you don't do this, this happens. Have a great day. There's no fight. There's no I can change this. It's this is just how it works here. And it takes time to build that. I'm not yeah. trying to minimize anything here. We're very honest about that. It's like, this isn't a hire us and in a week, everything's going to be great. It's a Talk it's time that. to start changing what you're doing. And through that process of redefining and redeveloping a container for this kid, for their brain, for their needs therapeutically, for their et cetera. And again, I don't want you to be your kid's therapist. Please don't be your kid's therapist. What I do need you to do is understand that there are times that you're going to have to be there to help that brain through the loop 
or process that it's in, and then your kid will be on the other side. That's where you can show up and be in relationship. But during the sequence that they're in, please don't try. Just you need to back up and follow a protocol of, okay, I see what's happening. I'm going to help them get from here to here safely. And then we're going to have dinner. Nice. How long do you typically spend with a family? I mean, this is all revolutionary. I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I mean, this should be mandatory (laughs) to have someone (laughs) like yourself show up in a family even if there's no drama or trauma, and just say, hey, here's, here's some tools, here's some strategies of how to navigate this situation so that everybody, as you say, wins, yeah. right? So how long do you typically spend with a family? This could be the first time many parents are hearing yes. this kind of information and their awareness is peaked, obviously. They're like, oh my God, I've never heard this before. How, how do you, how quickly can you shift that, that ocean liner of thinking? So the families that want, the families that come to us that start with the philosophy of teach me to do it. Those are our most successful families. And luckily those are most of our families because at this point they've gotten to us by trying everything else. Yeah, they're at rock bottom. And yeah, they're at rock bottom and they're they're willing to do this. So so what I'm going to say is we're with families in the in the Experiential Healing Institute, that company, we're with families for usually 3 to 6 months. And that's at least one visit on site to do the training and then the coaching uh, to get the process moving, put the plan in action, change the plan, change the plan, change the plan. And then suddenly what happens, Jamie, is there's this point where we know it's working when the parents call and they don't say, okay, he said this, what do I do? What they do without thinking, usually, like we don't prompt this. This is something we watch for is it changes where they call and say, okay, he punched a hole in the wall. He did this. I stood like this. I said this. I held this boundary. He's in his room. We're going to talk in 45 minutes, and tomorrow he's going to uh, do this, this, and this to pay for the wall to be punched. Have a nice night. Right. So our model is supervisory. So we know we're successful when the parents thinking like we do, Mm. acting like we do without needing the direction. Now, that being said, we stay with families. I mean, I have some families uh, with the way our model works is they can hire uh, like a couple hours on a clock. Those hours don't expire. So I have had a family call two years after we stabilized them. And literally the conversation is to the effect of, oh, my God, she got a boyfriend. Help. Because we plan for everything except that. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> right? You're and, on your and, you own. Know, she's older now. Like, they're right. changing. Like, as things shift, we kind of flow with our families. Uh-huh. So those that's the minimum is one visit and then the coaching. Some families we're with where we're there at least two to three times. We're coaching the kid. We're coaching – or the young adult. We're coaching the parents, the siblings. We're working with everybody. We in have person. Fan, in, per, in yep. person and over the phone. Yep. And then um, – 
some families will take us on vacation with them for a week. I, mean, I had one of my staff go to the Bahamas for a week. No I'm so mad at her. Okay, really? How did you not <laughs> Free get trip to the Bahamas for, for uh, a week. Like, You're okay. the boss. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> so anyway, we, we really dive in to be there for what the family's looking for. And, you know, a part of this that I'll plug right now is that the cost is prohibitive. Like this is not a cheap service. Sure. Um, and a part of a major part of that's insurance. Like to do this type of work is, is huge for insurance companies because they don't understand it. And very often we get lumped in like, Oh, you're doing therapy. The irony is we're not, we're mm-hmm. not using license for this. We are not saying, how does it make you feel? We are okay. He did this stand like this, do this. We are literally driving and using training and um, education pieces to build systems and protocols for each family based entirely on their kid. It's not cookie cutter. It's your kid acts like this, says this, does this. Here's how we're going to turn this, 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 this. And we plug in what we know into what they are learning until they know it. They just follow their system. And the conflict level drops dramatically until mom or dad or grandpa or whoever gets triggered And that's a part of this is we have to help them realize their therapeutic triggers because this kid to try to win, right. will try to do all the old patterns over and over and over again, again, six months, years, sometimes years. Yeah. I was just thinking they're going to test. Yep. Is this real? Is this new reality real or is the old reality still in place? Yeah. So we have lots of things we teach our families about repairing the past having conversations that allow to a, a total reset, um, et cetera. And these are all protocols that they follow when they need them. So they just have them. They're ready to use these things. Mm. Wow. <sighs> God, there's so much here. I'm <laughs> just know. like, I'm so blown away by this. It really is radical. It, and, and not. it doesn't feel confrontational. You know, when I look at some of my uh, not great parenting skills, it's about confrontation, Mm -hmm. like meeting confrontation with confrontation. And when I'm hearing you speak, it's almost like, I don't know if this is going to, how this is going to land, but it's like a, like military training. Like you're just repetitively going over. This is what you do in this situation. This is where you stand. This is the posture. These are the the words and the tone. Mm -hmm. And I think, God, I mean, this should be a curriculum. Well, that leads into the new company. Um, (laughs) So we've been doing this for seven years um, and we're very successful. Our numbers speak very highly of the success of the, the system. Now, the cost is prohibitive. And so what we've done is we're going to keep the experiential healing to rolling as kind of the premiere, like, okay, we're going to come in, we're going to be really heavy, we're going to do all of these things. But we started Parent Trainers um, as an offshoot of this. So it's a totally different company. Similar people will be involved, but it's going to be more education focused as far as like online videos that parents can purchase. Uh Coaching can be a part of it. Um, But if they need to go to this advanced level, they'll be pushed to the EHI. Um, Sorry, that's what everyone calls us, the EHI. Um, So parent trainers is kind of that platform of, okay, let's have an educational base, both for the people who are just curious 
people are just getting started, don't even know about interventions, programs, all that kind of stuff. So parent trainers is kind of the new, okay, we're going to offer this kind of intro service through this company and just to have educational lessons. I'm trying to put together kind of a parent university as a part of it Mm -hmm. where they can sign in and, and learn like a college course around different strategies and what's going on for their kid and that kind of stuff based on subjects that they can sign up and watch what's relevant to them, that kind of stuff. So that project's in the works. So it's Uh not a hundred percent launched, but we're getting there. So this year I I think it's all going to be fully running. But the idea is, is to have levels of, okay, if you're not in crisis and you're curious, you can tell something's going on, you kind of start here. And then if you are in crisis and it's pretty far gone, like that's where we're going to find the EHI in that capacity of like, we're on site, we're in your home, we're meeting your kid or not, we're doing all that different work. So we're going to have levels of intervention and education around those lines. And that's where the curriculum part comes in is, there's never necessarily going to be a like, oh, watch this and everything's going to be great. Sure. But what it is going to remain is, okay, let's look at your kid. What's happening? Let's get to know their brain, their patterns, et cetera. And it's amazing what we can infer from just reports from parents, teachers, uh, counselors we talk to, whatever. Like We can build a really comprehensive picture of a kid neurologically without ever having to actually speak with them. Because especially the teenagers, they're probably not going to talk to us. We're the enemy right, in, in, right. in a lot of those cases. So it, it's really about building it per kid, per family, per situation. Because every religion plays a part. Every family culture, every uh, traumatic history, yes. whatever it might be. Like everybody has their stuff. Yep. And our kids that we're helping through their parents. Um, we're kind of helping them evolve like using your metaphor where it's right. like, okay, you've been this, what we're doing is helping your parents realize that you're that because of the container that guess what they're creating. So that's not blaming the parent in that's the pa- saying they had the power. Right. And, very often, honestly, what we find a lot today is generation problems. Sure. Where the generation of parents that we're working with, they do not understand the kids and what they're going through. So there's right. a disconnect beyond anything we've seen before with technology and rules and kids and all that. Kind of yeah, stuff. that was like my next question. Do you, in the, in the parent training that you're developing, is there like a maintenance thing? Because... As a parent, my biggest hope is that my kids will come to me and talk to me. Mm-hmm. Ask how you're doing. They don't clam up. They, they're able to tap into emotionally whatever it is. But I guess what I'm driving at is there, a, is there a, a, something when you reach sort of a level with your parents and their training and their ability to... Uh, manage their children in a way that's collaborative because what I'm really hearing here is collaboration is just recycling through my head is there like some course that you're going to offer that's like here's how you maintain this and here's how you go to the next level where your kid will now trust you like to me if someone were to say what is your biggest hope for your relationship with your children mm-hmm. is that they trust me and they can come to me 
when they are feeling something and they can share it. So here's the problem. The problem is, is that there's not a cookie cutter solution. Mm -hmm. So you're saying, is there going to be a course? No. What there is going to be is a foundational, we need you to know how to do these things. (laughs) Okay. And that can be some very basic things that people just never learned. They didn't learn it from their parents or their grandparents or et cetera. So we got to sometimes start with a, this is a new world. Yeah. Like, can we we just accept that the way you were raised is not going to work for your kids? And that can be for a lot of reasons. Very often it's neurological, like the kid has depression or anxiety conditions or autism or something where the parents like, well, this is how it was done for me. And it's like, great. I'm glad that worked for you. You survived. Or did Would you like your kid to survive? (laughs) Yeah. Because they're going to be over here. And if you can't meet them there, you know, very often if a kid is placed out of a home um, for therapeutic reasons, very often it's not because of the kid. And you said earlier something about like the parents being the problem. You know, that's not really our philosophy. To, to us, there's there's the parent and then there's a trained parent. And my God, give me the trained parent any day. Sure. Because the, the parent or grandparent, that, that person that's learned how to do this work is able to step in during a crisis or the need for an intervention and handle themselves without getting triggered. They've learned how to do that. That's huge. And that is what you really need to know. So when you talk about having that relationship, you train, you know, and then you realize that there's not a cookie cutter because guess what? Your kid needs this, this, and this. Those are your keys. And that's where the coaching comes in is like, okay, learn the basics. Tell us about your kid. We're going to help point you. And then you're going to find X, Y, and Z. That's yours. But don't you dare go to your neighbor's house and be like, guess what I learned? If you just do this, this, and this, your kid yeah. will love you. Because yeah. that kid on that family is going to hate their parents if they do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. They needed ABC. Let me ask you a question about that. Because you mentioned a few times you're learning about the kid through the lens of the parent. I bet there's some, like, channel that you open up where you're like okay i hear what you're saying but that might not be accurate very good yeah so how do you how do you discern that so in our work at least very often it's not just the parents we're talking to other family we're talking to a counselor a siblings school teacher sometimes the sibling yeah absolutely depending on what level we're at when yep. trying to help them um So it's really about putting the story together from as many perspectives as we can. But sometimes that is just the parents. And then sometimes we will even step in and say, okay, we've tried this, this, and this, and it's not working. It's time for us to talk to your kid. Uh And the cool part is, is that we don't get on the phone and be like, why aren't you listening to your mom? No, (laughs) we get on the phone and say, okay. Your mom is trying to be different. She would like to be supportive for you. She would like to understand and do this, this, and this. So what I need you to do is give me feedback on what your mom does well and what she sucks at. 
and the number of kids that are like, oh, this is going to be great. <laughs> yeah, they're they rubbing get, their hands. They, oh, my God. They go on for hours <laughs> yeah. sometimes yeah, of like, oh, it. yeah, well, she does this, and yeah. it pisses me off when I do that, and you know all this kind of stuff. That's how we get them. Uh-huh. We get them in the sense of like, hey, we're we're not here. We're not coming after you. What they don't understand is that if mom changes, they'll change. They don't think that way. Uh-huh. Humans don't you typically think that way. That's why the kids like make them or the adult, the parent that gets trapped is like, I, he has to respect me. He has to listen to me. And it's like, actually, he doesn't. That's not a part of this deal. Huh. Like if you want to have a respectful relationship with him, we can look at how that's going to happen. But we have to look at what his personality is, what phase of development he's in, what trauma he's had. Let's put all the pieces together and then say, okay, we need you to start doing this, this, and this. And that's the crazy thing, Jamie, is that the success stories that we have are really brought in by the, oh my God, we didn't think that would work, but it does. And it's not that the conflict disappears. And I want to be clear about that. This is not, oh, look at us. We're a happy family. It's, hey, my kid just punched the wall because he was mad and went to his room. But I didn't yell at him. Oh, my God. Guess what? Yeah. Because if if this parent yelled at him, he turned around and came back and they're at it. Right? Like for the next 45 minutes, they hate each other. They're yelling at each other. But now this kid punched the wall, went to his room, and 15 minutes later is going to come out come up and say, I'm sorry, I lost my cool. And you're the parent is then able to say, I saw that and it's okay. I mm. respect that sometimes you need to do that until oh, you figure I, out what I, you're I doing. I mean, just hearing this is Boom. just landing, you know, on my parental ears mm. in a very uh, amazing way. I have a, so many of these questions I have for you have just been completely, the boxes <laughs> have been ticked. But, <laughs> I want to I want to ask you this question, kind of using myself as a lab rat here. Um, first of all, do you work with single parents all the time? Okay, so I was raised from age three to twelve by a single mom. Mm-hmm. I was wild and completely bridled against authority. Mm-hmm. What strategies would you employ? And, and my mom was very cut and dry. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't like you know, I had free reign to do whatever. I was I was basically a feral child mm-hmm. because she was dealing with her own grief at my father's passing. Right. And I had two older brothers. She had her hands full with them in the 60s, Vietnam War, drugs, the whole... So I was kind of giving a free reign. <laughs> Yet I, I, was, I was rebellious. Mm-hmm. How would you handle a kid like that? Or a parent like my mom, who, in her defense, I, I feel like ultimately she was a good mother. She was MIA for much of my life, dealing with her own shit. Mm-hmm. Talk about that if you can. So, because you must have examples similar to oh, that. Oh, absolutely. Right? <laughs> absolutely. Now, the problem with this is uh, a part of our work is helping parents understand that, like you just said, three to 12. The range neurologically for that is so extensive. So what do you want me to focus on when you were three to six, six to nine, yeah. or from nine to 12? You know, I, I, I'll be honest, three to six to me felt like 
my heyday, mm-hmm. right? I wasn't getting the reflection from other kids that I looked different because mm-hmm. of my hair lip. Uh, I had this great, um, just joy de vivre is what I would say. And then like age seven, eight, nine, I began getting that reflection. Mm-hmm. And then by nine, I was fucking pissed. Yep. Really angry. I mean, there's a picture I, I told, I think Sue Mason, I showed her this picture behind you. But um, when, when we leave, it, it really exemplifies this, fuck you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do what I want, say what I want, be what I want, and you're not going to control me. Yeah. And I think that's what my mom was up against. Yes. You know, 12, my stepfather showed up on scene, and that changed everything. Yep. So. So what age do you want me to focus on in that story? 9 to 12, the anger. The kid who's like, feels like the world's uh, got him by the short hairs, and he's pissed and struggling and doesn't listen, doesn't obey, smoking pot. Right. Having sex, drinking. So for the listener, let me be as clear as I can be. I'm offering without a lot of information, kind of some directive ideas. Sure. This is not prescriptive. This is here's where the conversation might go. Note that disclaimer, folks. Yes. Well, it's hard because some people listen to something or read something in a book and go, oh, that's the answer. And then they just make things worse. Yeah. Because they sure. don't actually know what they're doing. A little bit of information is dangerous. Um, so for you in that scenario, if I, I was talking to your mom, we would start by looking at what direction you need to be pointed because she's not going to be able to do this all on her own. Okay. So a big part of it would be looking at where can we put you to get that energy redirected that you would be respectful of the process, something you're interested in. Very often we have uh, a lot of success putting kids into internships. Uh Okay. And, you know, I have examples of kids that they work at an exotic fish store. um, They blacksmithing. um, Working on cars, that kind of stuff at those ages where it's like, just you know and and the parents sometimes will pay the mechanic sure for the internship yeah yeah, can my kid come be with you you know etc and then that in some of those cases the parents pay them they pay the kid it's an exchange where the kid again behind the scenes they don't need all the details this isn't manipulation it's direction right it's okay you need to get that energy out let's see if we can turn it into a constructive energy That being said, we then have to do an assessment of the danger you're in. Like, yeah, you're smoking pot, but are you smoking pot um, and, you know, getting in your older friend's cars, driving 110 miles an hour, that kind of stuff? Are you having unprotected sex? Like, what what are the dangers that we're really looking at with this? And then making assessments of, okay, does this person need an intervention? Do they need uh, more intensive therapy, things like that? Um, I'll pause there just to be clear. I've been on other podcasts, uh, where I haven't, 
the focus has been on therapy's not the answer. Mm-hmm. I want to. I feel like I need to throw that out a lot, and I plug it in a lot because so many families fall into the trap of, oh, well, he just needs to go to therapy. No, he doesn't. Yeah, therapy does not help when you don't want to be there. Exactly. It really doesn't, especially yeah. for teenagers. The research on this is extensive. Yeah. So just putting that out there. We're not talking about therapy. We're talking about putting them in a place that they're being mentored or directed just by being in that space, going to a gym and working out with your older brothers, like put them in and then you want to follow them. Great. We're, so she's doing it for you, but she's sending him. Right. Right. Like, okay, let's get this kind of energy directed in those ways. That being said, if you're not going to go to therapy, that's where it comes into, okay, is there any way we can get you into some form of rite of passage, uh, boys club, etc.? But then we sometimes even have to back up where it's like, okay, we'd like to get this kid involved in this club over here or this rite of passage group or et cetera. But you don't take them to that group, especially not at 12 and 13. You do not just, oh, here, go there. No, you don't. What you do is you find out a kid that's in that group and then you start having that kid come over to play with your kid. And then that kid will tell, oh, I can't come over on Tuesdays because I could do, the, do this group. What group's that? Right. Uh, could, could I go with you? Like yeah. you're trying to get the buy-in from their side by guiding the steps piece by piece. Huh. I, I gotta say, I feel like he nailed it amazingly because think of it, free range kid. Mm-hmm. So no structure, no boundaries. No. Lot of energy. Mm-hmm. I had <laughs> tremendous energy. And I think of my mom, you know, three boys, my two older brothers who are taking a lot of her focus because they were of age where they could either be arrested or get into serious trouble in a vehicle. They were driving, so they're older than me. Uh, and then channeling that energy, like you said, blacksmithing or carpentry or baking or some place to focus. What's interesting, and, and you don't know this part of the story, uh, my story is at age 12, my mother remarried. So she had been single for those nine years. And uh, my stepfather was a school teacher at a rival high school. And he was a powerfully built man. He used his physicality to uh, keep his students in, in line. He was very, uh, you know, back in 1971, 72, you could intimidate people physically in school. Mm -hmm. I don't think he hit people or anything like that. It was more like his physicality. But when he showed up on scene, um, you know, I dressed like a little hippie. I acted like a little hippie. I had long hair. Mm -hmm. And he knew I was smoking pot. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, you know what? I know you're smoking pot. I'm going to ask you to stop. And, of course, I just scoffed. He said, if you don't stop and I catch you again, here's what I'm going to do to you. (laughs) And I think, you know, in a way, it's not too dissimilar to what you're talking about that you do. He established the container. Mm -hmm. He established some boundaries and some rules. And sure enough, a few months later, I got ratted out by this kid who was upset because I was dating his ex-girlfriend. 
and he told my stepfather that Jamie's smoking weed down at the park. And uh, I got the call, you know, come here. You know, he drove down there. Come on. He dragged me home or drove me home, went up to my room. He spanked me. I was 12. He was much bigger. And he dragged me off to the barber, first thing, cut my hair. Then he bagged up all my hippie clothes, and we went to the local, like, Brooks Brothery type store mm-hmm. and uh, bought me all new clothes mm-hmm. that were, like, button-downs and corduroys and not the hippie clothes from head shops that yeah. I had bought. And the crew that I was hanging out with in middle school, I will say, you know, they, they were trouble. And I was, you know, one of the alphas of that little crew. And the next day when I came to school with short hair, dressed like a J. Crew catalog kid, they ran. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, it was as if I had leprosy. Yeah. Okay. And that was the end of that. Yep. And, you know, here I am now mortified, ashamed, angry, and I found some kids came up to me that I never would have talked to before. Mm -hmm. And they became my best friends through high school. Yeah. And uh, I will say that some of the kids that that I became friends with were uh, booted out of prep schools for doing naughty things. Mm -hmm. And I subsequently learned more about drugs and alcohol from those kids than I had learned previously. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> and, and, and you know what? The difference was they could talk the game with the parents. Yeah. They looked the part. They they had no attitude that was popping off them. Yeah. And they could play the game. Yes. And then we go upstairs and party and, and so there was it, it was a real shift. Well, it's part of the things that even today parents in the, I'm going to say in modern uh, problems that they're facing, it's the same thing. Um, and I'm not condoning everything your stepfather did. However, when I look at the system of what he did, very often that's what uh, is necessary. Then intervention, some form of, okay, that's right. Speak, here's the request. Here's the consequence. And then the, the, here's the real tricky part. You have to mean it. Whatever you yeah. say, you have to mean. That's key. And that's where you will, with teenagers at least, you'll see that change. You will yep. see that, oh, you meant that. That's real. Because uh, teenager brain development is really centered on testing reality. What's real and what's not real. It's why when they're smoking pot and they're talking about, like, the constructs of government, like, they're not, like, that. that's true for them. Is that real? Right. Is it not real? But that's all the way down to, will mom, you know, really stop making me dinner if I don't come to dinner tonight? You know, sometimes it, it, it's just testing what they can get away with, uh-huh. but it's actually neurological. This isn't like a FU moment. They're trying to find out what's real and not real because they're at the age uh, in their neurodevelopment and in their biology where they're supposed to be forming into a role within a tribal community. Mm. They're supposed to be 
um, entering into that final phase of internship and development in that cave kind of uh, tribal living environment, which our bodies and brains still are programmed for. Mm. That's what so many people don't understand yeah, about that. No is doubt. they're like, oh, we've come so far. Yeah, technology has come so far. We have not. <laughs> our brains are the same brains yeah. that crawled out of the cave and threw rocks at the dragon. Like, that's who we still are. So when they look at these teenage behaviors, they get so confused because then as a, you know, 45-year-old adult, they're, they're looking at their teenage son being like, what's he thinking? He's not thinking. <laughs> He's reacting neurologically mm-hmm. to the stimuli that's around him. And I'll be honest, one of the biggest problems that we help families through is starting to understand that kids, like you had your gangs you were running with. You even called them a crew, and I laughed. Right. It was like you had your crew, your hippie crew. I did. And, and then you had your J-crew crew. My J-crew crew. <laughs> so that's how it used to be. Well, guess what? My crew, you know, and I'm saying like kids today, their crew is millions strong mm. on Instagram yeah. and TikTok, TikTok and yeah. all these things. So very, very, very much, very focused. Our kids, my daughter, is growing up in that generation where it's like, okay, she's being raised by peers that she'll never meet. Yeah. Ever. So your kids encourage you to smoke the good pot or to talk to your dad like this and you'll get away with it or et cetera. Mm -hmm. Her crew is saying, you don't need them. You have us. Huh. The world is changing. Yes. Like their problems are global problems, not personal problems, which we're seeing in suicide research for teenagers, especially the weight of having to solve the world's problems is weighing on these kids Mm. because of their social crew. Oh, this matters to all of us. There's nothing we can do. There's a sense of hopelessness. There's all this. And that's a whole other podcast. But my point is, is we're really looking at the, okay, parents, try to bring them in centralized. They need a role in your family, in your home. Even if it's a single parent with a single kid, you need roles with each other where it flows and functions and works so that there's responsibility and respect within this small dynamic because they're trying to make sense of that out there. And without that foundation, they're going to flail. Mental health issues are going to just blossom in them if they don't have something to stand on. But very often um, we run into major issues with parents that are falling into categories of like, oh, I'm my daughter's best friend. Oh, great. She's screwed because she needed a parent, not a friend. She has thousands, millions of friends. She needed a parent. And we need you to change into that if you want this to change. So very often it's retraining the parent where it's like, oh, well, you know, I grew up in a very abusive household. There's their trauma. That's what they're looking at, et cetera. Well, that's what we have to help them get through. It's like, okay, back up. It's time for you to you do your work to show up differently right. to help your kid. And we have to get all these puzzle pieces put together. Mm. And that's our job. Our job is to find the puzzle pieces, make it clear. And then give actionable steps. Again, we don't say, how do you feel? We say, are you ready to do the work? Yeah. It's funny, too, just circling back to, like, this intervention uh, that you termed that my stepfather did, which in retrospect is spot on. Uh, The other piece was that, you know, I got grounded and I had jobs. 
Uh-huh. I didn't have jobs before that, mm-hmm. meaning jobs around the house. Yep. And uh, my mother was mortified because one of my jobs was doing the dishes, and she loved doing the dishes. <laughs> but what it what it was resetting in me was re- this idea of responsibility. Yeah. And being part of this, call it team. Yes. Of stepfather, mother, brothers, if they're around. And not just this free-range animal, feral animal running around with no responsibility. So, yeah, which that's the detriment. The detriment right. is I don't belong anywhere for those teenage years. Yeah, when we get into young adult, it starts to change. Again, the brain goes through phases, um, and I mean we're still doing just the baby research on the older generations now. We didn't used to live this long. Yeah, no kidding. Just to remind just everybody, like a podcast hundred years that. ago, I would be dead by now. Yeah, forty, basically <laughs> yes. forty, and now it's eighty. That's right. So right. from forty to eighty, we're excuse me, just now getting information on what our brains are doing. But forty and below, we have some pretty good data just through social structure and research and heck a lot of religions have stories in them to train people for what's coming because it was so repetitive that it was predictable Mm -hmm. and i can't tell you the number of times in our work that we're like how did you know she would do that because we've been doing this for (laughs) millions of years and it's never changed that's how we knew she was going to do that Mm -hmm. wow what an amazing conversation, Rob. I, uh, you know, for me personally, having a teenage boy in the house and a nine-year, almost nine-year-old daughter who has yet to exhibit the teen uh, personality, but it will be coming, yes. as you well know. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is really, it, it's, and, and so much of this is, I've been learning the Jamie way, i.e. the hard way about what's triggered me mm-hmm. with my son's behavior and really owning that as my own trigger from my own trauma mm-hmm. and not passing that on. I think really the, the gist of what I'm hoping for is in this role of parent is not to continue the legacy as best I can of trauma, of behavioral issues and just passing it on to my kids mm-hmm. basically you know if you consider them an open vessel which in many ways they are and just pouring in my shit so that it becomes their shit mm-hmm. and then they become that to their kids etc etc so i so appreciate what you're uh what you've created what you're doing um I I wanted to talk a little more about the, the wilderness aspect just because I know for me personally how much nature has played a healing role in my life. But we're we're approaching an hour and a half here and, and I'm cognizant of your time. I guess I wanna if you're willing to just talk about a couple like success stories that really stick out in your mind that you're really proud of and and it's a way for maybe you to illustrate a little bit more of the efficacy of what it is that you're doing if you if you can yeah i can uh, real quick just go into a couple things um first of all success is hard in my world 
because every family's different. So, for example, some families just want their kid to stop smoking pot. Well, if we can get that to happen, success. Other families, they want to um, have a relationship with their kid where the kid will come to them to talk about their problems. Other families are like, yeah, smoke pot as much as you want. You know, come have a beer with me and just, you know, pay rent. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so first of all, success is defined by each individual family. Because we have to accept that my interpretation of success is not what this family is actually looking for. So just putting that out there. But as far as like looking at what's happened, you know, we, we have a very high success rate with bringing kids home from programs where they've uh-huh. been to an intervention rehab uh, and kids to us is anywhere we work usually six to 40. The kid is six to 40. Oh, no kidding. As our huh. age range. So people coming home from programs, the parents just want to know like, how can we be supportive of this? And we've done it for seven years. Uh, the numbers we have uh, really look like around 250 families that have come home from programs that we've helped transition home and we've only had uh, six, to our knowledge, return to a program after. Wow. And a big part of that success has been really on the model where um, we've seen success where the kid will come home and literally, and this is how we know it's successful, to, here's your story, literally will yell at the parents and say, Dad, you're supposed to be yelling at me. Why aren't you yelling at me? Yeah. This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Success. Yeah. Boom. No it's kidding. Like, and Dad's standing there being like, I normally would yell at you, but that never helped. So we're going to do it differently now. Mm. And just that, like, we're going to do it feel differently that. Yeah. now. Feel that in my and, body. And that is, like, just a very simple, like, okay, this dad got it. He got it that he needs to be different. And the kid, the kid was baiting him trying to get this fight to happen to make themselves feel better. Yeah. Oh, I'm anxious. I better have a fight with dad and then I'll feel better. Yeah. (laughs) And then the dad, the dad doesn't play his role and breaks that causal chain. That's right. He started playing Uno instead of life. So the rules have shifted and the kid adjusts to them Mm. because they're living in that container. Now, here we go. Other, like, more concrete, like, longer-term things is kids that um, they have autism. I'm thinking of one kid in particular where the family was like, we, we just don't know what to do. Like, he, he's he's medium-functioning. Like, we just want a better relationship, et cetera. So the kid, um, we got it set up where he worked with us to figure out, and, and his parents, how to get a job. They drive him to the job. They pick him up from the job. He pays them rent. So he has his room. Uh-huh. It is his. He gets to own it, do whatever wow. he wants to it. Like here, there's this whole efficacy that happened for this family where they went from he's our ward to he's our roommate. Uh-huh. And that mentality shift changed everything. For Super them. empowering. They, have a, they yeah. have a lease. He's like he's learning all these adult skills that one day he might actually be able to be on his own, uh-huh. which was their greatest fear, by the way, because he was a young adult and they just had lost all hope. But their greatest fear is they'll die. Right. And what happens to him? Well, right. if we can get this developed just that's systematically. Huge. There you go. Yeah. So that's a concrete example. Um, there's so many more. But the idea is just using what the family already knows illustrating how you develop it into a skill or an actionable protocol 
and then stepping out of the role of, oh, we have to have this be a certain way. Uh-huh. And if we can get that to happen where the parent opens in their mind to my family is going to be different than every other family in the world because my kid is different than every other kid in the world. Now there's room for success. Yeah. Wow. Do you, uh, do you ever hear back from any families? Like, Oh yeah. Graduation announcements, uh, jobs, like people being like, Hey, just want to let you know that he went through his first breakup and it actually went okay. Like just notes from families from over the years. That must be so gratifying to hear that and spur you on to continue this amazing work. Yep. Wow. So proud of you, man. It's like necessary. It really is. I believe so. Yep. I'm glad you're my friend if I run into any roadblocks (laughs) with uh, my teenager. (laughs) You're Uh only a phone call away or two miles, not even two miles away. We're going to have to discuss my rates. Yeah, I know. I know. You kept mentioning that. I was thinking, well, we're bros, right? (laughs) Well, again, we're trying um, to be able to meet all the needs. So some of it's always just going to be expensive because that's the therapeutic treatment world. It's expensive. And then we're trying to get down to, okay, start here. See if that solves it. If it doesn't, sure. do this, this, et cetera. So if we can hit every level, we'll be able to hit everybody. Nice. How, how can people uh, find you? Um, the two websites are theehi.org uh-huh. and then uh, parenttrainers.com is the new one that should be fully operational this year, 2023. Um, we have videos and things going on now. So hopefully by this summer it'll be functional and then leading into more and more content and like i said we're trying to do a parent university part of it stuff like that so courses and newsletters and all that to help so excellent that's such good work it really is well i can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy day showing up here and chatting about this so thank you yeah it's been a real pleasure and i'll have those uh ways to reach Rob uh, in the show notes. Cool. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, thank you. See ya. If you like the show and listen on Spotify, please follow and rate the podcast. If you are on Apple, you can rate and write a review. And if you want to show us some love on whatever podcast platform you listen on, that would be much appreciated. This podcast has been edited and produced by Gilroy Productions. Thanks, buddy. Love you.